cats and kittens, and welcome to the May 2021 edition of Outward. That's my new intro. I'm Christina Cotarucci, <laughs> a senior writer at Slate. And right now, I am just reveling in the possibilities of the lesbian power vacuum that's going to open up when Ellen DeGeneres steps down from her talk show next year. <laughs> I'm predicting a little instability, obviously, but uh, hoping we can avoid any sectarian violence um, and have a peaceful transfer of power to the next whatever next uh, rich and cynical jerk uh, wants to rule our <laughs> land. Here, here. here. <laughs> uh, I'm Ramon Alam. I um, I don't have any affiliation at Slate, and so every month when I have to say who I am, I, I like stumble over how to say this. I'm just myself. Aww, I'm a writer. And that's more than I'm enough. One of the, that's more than enough, I guess. And Christina, it's funny that you would bring up Ellen because when I saw the news, I was like, oh, Christina Cotarucci's going to get that job and leave us in the dust. <laughs> gonna be the daily show it's just gonna be called christina maybe with an explanation yeah i don't have enough of a filter i'm not kind enough you know she's Mm -mm. got that whole be kind thing i'm right (laughs) i'm even too much of a way too way too vicious yeah Um, and I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and, you know, with the assistance of my stylus this month, I've unlocked a new level of gay. <laughs> I'd like to share it with the group. It involves using something called a Den Man brush, special mm. brush with a name that makes my hair look like the crispy curled ribbons on a Christmas box, and I am so pleased uh, with it. Thank you, Justin, uh, my stylist, for, for that uh, leveling up of gayness. A, I don't like your this anti-bald rhetoric. <laughs> <laughs> your hair looks fantastic, Brian. Thank B, you. Does Justin listen to Outward? I don't know. I should. Mm. I have to. I have to. You know, I don't like to to sort of proselytize <laughs> while in the chair, but maybe next next Just next time I will. Casually drop it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, it's great to see your faces. We have a great show this month. So this May, as the cicadas are gnawing their way out of the ground for their sex fest that's been (laughs) 17 years in the making, we can all identify with that, we're looking into the past and the future to talk about how queers are seen, how our histories are remembered, and what we can learn from new representations of queer life. First up, we'll be joined by historian and novelist Sarah Schulman, who's just published a magisterial new history of ACT UP New York called Let the Record Show. Then we're going to have a little chit-chat about queer portraiture as a mirror held up to ourselves, as a window into other people's lives. We'll be talking about three very different photo books, some from the past, some from today, that depict queers both alone and together. And as always, we will give you our recommendations for filling up your gay agenda. But first, it's time for Pride and Provocations, the moment in our show where we look at the queer news and share whatever way it is making us feel. Named, of course, for Bette Porter's legendary (laughs) exhibition, Provocations, in the L Word. Yes. Ruman, why don't you go first? It's terribly predictable to begin this way, but maybe we'll just get it out of the way. (laughs) I'm so provoked by Caitlyn Jenner's candidacy for governor of California. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, I I don't really even know what there is to say beyond that. In fact, in some ways, the objective of the candidacy seems, in fact, to elicit this particular provocation. 
So Caitlyn Jenner, as some of you probably already know, not long ago said on Fox News, it's this ridiculous claptrap about the person in the private jet hangar across from hers wanting to flee California to get away from all Mm. those icky homeless people. It's just such a terrible reminder, as though we needed another one, that the sort of alliances, that the allegiance to class trumps all in Mm. contemporary political life. And undoubtedly, there is a lot of good in Caitlyn's very public story. And I want to hold on to that. But her politics are so distasteful. And the scapegoating of poverty in the state of California is so preposterous. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to feel my stomach turn. I just, yeah, I feel really provoked thinking about Caitlyn Jenner. That's, you know, par for the course, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, in a way, this segment was sort of made for somebody like Caitlyn Jenner. You know, every now and then we need to take a look at our own and reckon with the yeah. terrible things that our LGBTQ family are doing. So, yeah. 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 There was a good tweet I saw that I thought summed this all up, which was like, Caitlyn Jenner, don't misgender her, but also don't vote for her. <laughs> and like, I think, <laughs> I think that, that's that says it, it all. That says it all. It's, it's just, it is especially disappointing in a moment where conversations around trans people and trans young people in this country are so much a part of this like nonsensical political chatter that it's become so weaponized in such bad faith as a political wedge issue. And, you know, what... Mm young trans people in this country could really use is a powerful white palatable ally and that Caitlyn Jenner is unable and unwilling to rise to that particular Mm. challenge is really disappointing to me. I hadn't even thought of that side of it. Brian, how are you feeling this month? I'm feeling proud, uh, proud in particular of an article that I read in uh, them.us, uh, which is a, you probably know, it's an LGBT um, publication under Condé Nast. It was titled How to Be a Queer Person in the World Post-Quarantine, and it spoke to some personal trepidation, anxiety I'm having about this sort of coming out of, of quarantine period. So I just want to read, it, read a little passage, and then I'll, I'll s- explain what I mean by that. This is by, I should say, by Naveen Kumar. Gathering in mass at dance clubs and pride celebrations feels achingly close on the horizon. The camaraderie and support of queer social life has been sorely missed, and it will no doubt be thrilling for many of us to get together again. But we may have also enjoyed temporary freedom from some pressures on the outside world. We've grown comfortable feeling, well, comfortable. In isolation, there are fewer people, queer or straight, scrutinizing our bodies, their shapes and colors, what we put in or on them, or how we express gender, sexuality, or our particular mood at a given moment. There's a measure of loneliness to not being seen, but also relief in not concerning ourselves with others' expectations. And the piece goes on to sort of dig into sort of how to deal with sort of body image stuff and gender expression and all of that as, as queers are coming out into the world again in a different way. But I, I myself have been feeling surprised, actually, by how much uh, anxiety I've had about the sudden push to make summer plans and mm. get ready to go to the bar again or to parties or are you sort of I mean this is a gay male thing I think this particularly bad is like do you have like the body back that mm. you're supposed to have right I don't feel that I do but I also recognize that, that it's like body dysmorphic so there's all kinds of problems there right so as as we come into this period where everyone's supposed to feel I think sort of excited and hopeful I actually have very mixed feelings about it And so it was just very helpful to read this piece by Naveen Kumar and remember that 
I and none of us have to rush into anything or be ready in any particular way just because, you know, the world is is opening up again. Um, and I think that's probably particularly yeah. true for, for queer. So uh, proud, proud of that piece uh, in them. Thank you for sharing that, Brian. And because I think of the body image stuff often in terms of just women and and sometimes forget that, you know, for gay men, there's a whole nother mm-hmm. similar in some ways, but also very different, you know, reaction to or demands for a certain right. type of look and body. Christina, how are you feeling? I'm feeling proud, too. And I'm going to share a little bit of a different perspective on that same thing on the prospect of going back into the world after all this quarantine. This is a little bit of a throwback pride, actually. So I've been planning a post-vaccine vacation with a few friends. One of them happened to be reading Leaves of Grass, as you do, uh, (laughs) by noted homosexual Walt Whitman. By way of sharing his excitement for our trip, he shared this passage with me, which made me think of the onset of Pride Month, what I hope will be an unbearably sexy Pride Month. (laughs) And I just want to offer this as a gift to you two, to our listeners, this vision of what could be for the people who want to embrace it, of all of the things we've been missing, crowded dance floors, you know, sweaty marches, hugging and kissing our friends and lovers, ex-lovers, acquaintances, frenemies, like anyone we haven't seen in a year or more. So here's what Walt Whitman has to say about that. I have perceived that to be with those I like is enough. To stop in company with the rest at evening is enough. To be surrounded by beautiful, curious, breathing, laughing flesh is enough. To pass among them or touch anyone or rest my arm ever so lightly round his or her neck for a moment. What is this then? I do not ask any more delight. I swim in it as in a sea. There is something in staying close to men and women and looking on them and in the contact and odor of them that pleases the soul well. The odor in particular really gets me in the mood for pride. Um, but I That's like so this. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Yeah. For, yeah. For people who are, you know, familiar with the Passover Seder also, it has a very Dayenu kind of vibe to it. This, mm. you know, that would have been enough. And after all this time in isolation with various anxieties and stress, to me, you know, just to be with each other is enough. I almost don't care, you know, what what parties I go to, whether Pride in any form will or will not happen, whether it's in Pride Month or not. I know DC Pride is going to be happening in October, it looks like. But right now, you know, I want to see people again. And I'm proud and also grateful this month for all of the queers and lanyard lesbians who helped us get to this point Mm -hmm. where we can start being ourselves together again. And I, I hope that, you know, on a little bit of a different note, the the U.S. can start accelerating our aid to other countries so that queers in other places can do the same. Yes, yes. Yeah, it has, as Brian noted, it has been a traumatic time and it's useful to remember that and acknowledge it. But then to hear what Whitman wrote is a reminder that like there's something on the horizon, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. there's something joyous Absolutely. on the horizon and that's important. All right. Coming up after the break, we'll talk to Sarah Schulman about her new book, Let the Record Show. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. 
Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. In most any Pride season montage of queer history made today, there will be a section marking the onset of the HIV-AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s that depicts the protests of ACT UP. It was during that period, from 1987 to 1993 specifically, that the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power fought against profound governmental and societal hostility towards queers and others living under the shadow of AIDS through its now iconic actions, storming the FDA headquarters, unfurling a giant condom over Senator Jesse Helms' house, scattering the ashes of deceased loved ones on the White House lawn. But these powerful images were not always part of the popular queer historical narrative, and the special mix of individuals, values, circumstances, and organizing that produced them, thereby actually saving lives and changing the world, is only just beginning to be properly understood. For that, we have to thank, in very large part, our guest today, Sarah Schulman. Sarah's path-breaking efforts as a queer writer, journalist, activist, filmmaker, and historian span genre and medium, including more than 20 published works and several documentaries. She is a distinguished professor of humanities at the College of Staten Island and co-founder of the Mix New York LGBT Experimental Film Festival. And perhaps most relevant for us today, she is the co-director of the ACT UP Oral History Project, which, along with her own years of activism in the group, forms the basis for her new truly landmark book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP, New York. We had the pleasure of talking with Sarah almost a year ago about the complex legacy of late ACT UPper Larry Kramer, and we are beyond thrilled to have her back this month to discuss this essential new book. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And likewise. So I chose to frame the introduction there sort of around ACT UP's place in this uh, queer historical narrative, because one of the first surprises of the book uh, to someone youngish, but sort of very much engaged with queer history like me, is the point that you make that ACT UP was by the late 90s, early 2000s, sort of almost forgotten and not and not really a part of that narrative. And so it was that erasure that spurred you, uh, along with Jim Hubbard, to begin the Oral History Project, um, which I should note, like ultimately comprised 188 interviews, I think over 17 years. Um, I'd love for you just to start by describing what you think precipitated that amnesia around ACT UP and then how you and Jim and others went about correcting it. So ACT UP's most effective years were 1987 to 93. It had a split in 1992. That was only 12 people, but it really hurt the organization. And it, although it exists to this day, it became much weaker and much smaller. In 1996, we see the advent of protease inhibitors, which was the beginning of having medications that allow people who are HIV positive to live a normal lifespan. And so many people who had been in the ACT UP movement kind of crawled back into real life and tried to re-enter. A number of people had thought that they would die, but they didn't die. And they had to recreate lives and the organization kind of scattered. By the end of the century, we have the internet revolution. Things that were not digitized disappeared from public life. So by around 2000, if you Googled ACT UP, you really didn't find anything. And people were writing books or dissertations, and they were using the New York Times as their primary source, Mm. which ACT UP called the New York Crimes. And it kind of was gone. It was as though it had never existed. So then in 2001, it was the 20th anniversary of AIDS, and I was listening to the radio, and the guy said, 
At first, America had trouble with people with AIDS, but then they came around. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, we, and, you know, I thought, oh, no, this is what's going to happen. They're going to create this idea of the benevolence of the dominant culture that came around and realized when actually it was thousands of people who fought until the day they died that forced the country to change against its will. So that's when Jim Hubbard and I decided that we needed to at least create some kind of raw data Mm -hmm. that other people could interpret. And through the visionary leadership of Irvishi Vad, who at that point was at the Ford Foundation, she gave us enough money to buy the equipment and the software and to start these interviews. So because Jim and I both believe in open access, we made the uh, transcripts available for free and we just put everything up on the web. And our hope was that somebody would interpret it. To date, we've had over 14 million hits on this site. So just to let people know, two people can do a lot. You know, you don't, you don't need. But what didn't happen was that people did not really analyze the interviews. They would search for the key the word that they were looking for, but nobody was actually understanding what was in there. And, you know, we we kept trying to find someone to write a book, but we couldn't find anybody. And then this kind of misrepresentation started. Right, right. And, um, you know, the the emergence of the five heroic individuals and the elimination of any of the activity of low-income people or women or people of color. And it became a a state of emergency. And finally, Jim and I realized that I was going to have to write this book. The book, very clearly, explicitly, is, is sort of writing not just a history, but writing against a sort of a vision of HIV AIDS activism and act up specifically that that you feel is is sort of wrong um, and and is sort of misrepresenting. So yeah, I, I just wanted to hear you talk more about what that sort of wrong vision is and what you're trying to correct. The number one point here is not nostalgia. The point is is that you have an activist movement of profoundly oppressed people from a variety of margins who were able, in a sense, to to create a paradigm shift in the culture. And how they did that is very important information because people today really want change. That is clear. And it's very hard to access activist history. To actually find out what movements did, what worked and what didn't work is almost impossible. So the idea was to cohere this. And one of the most important pieces of information is that contrary to John Wayne movies, (laughs) individuals do not create paradigm shifts. It's coalitions and communities in America that create change. So that was the starting point. And because I had conducted all but two of the interviews, I really knew what was in them. And it wasn't that hard for me to go back and start to cohere some tropes. It took about three years to write the book. Do you then conceive of this as simultaneously a history and a blueprint? Like, is the aim to teach something to future generations of activists? It is a political history, because there are going to be many other histories written of this movement, and there already have been. There have been two books about affect in ACT UP. There's books about the history of graphics in ACT UP. There's memoirs coming out from Peter Staley and Ron Goldberg and some other people. So, you know, I'm not making any claim to a definitive history. 
No political movement is discrete. Like no political movement just comes out of the air. They're all influenced by previous movements. And one of the things about ACT UP is many people came from previous movements where they had to be in the closet, but they were there. And also there was the foundational influence of the black civil rights movement and the black power movement of the 1960s. And I think for queer kids growing up in that period who had no kind of gay movement to identify with, there was a real identification with black resistance. And we ended up using a lot of those strategies, although not consciously. You know, it was only when I looked at the specifics of what, for example, Martin Luther King said in Letter from Birmingham Jail about what direct action is, that it was exactly what ACT UP did, although we never studied that text, and we certainly didn't discuss it. The fact that there are conflicting viewpoints in your book, and and even in some cases, it seems like conflicting memories of how things went down. To me, it, it reflects the fact that ACT UP had this very dispersed decision-making structure. You know, there was no need and maybe no time to really come to consensus as a group before taking an action. Um, different affinity groups were doing different things. And I wonder if you see room for that in current activist movements where it seems to me like there's a lot more emphasis on, you know, keeping everyone on message, keeping everyone in line with a particular strategy and a little bit less emphasis on, you know, let's take this, I think you call it a simultaneity of of approach or simultaneity of action. Well, it's one of the most important lessons to learn from ACT UP is ACT UP did not use consensus at all. Uh, We had one sentence, principle of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis, and direct action as opposed to social service provision. So if you were doing direct action to end the AIDS crisis, you could do it. And if you wanted to get arrested on the Lower East Side doing illegal needle exchange and do a test case, and I thought that was terrible, I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. I just wouldn't do it. I might then create another action like disrupting mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral because that's what I wanted to do. So this idea of trying to stop people was not operative in ACT UP at all. And that's uh, radical democracy. And I think historically movements that try to force homogeneity of analysis or strategy or even language have all failed. I don't think there's any example in the past where that has succeeded. There's a lot of humor and style in what ACT UP was doing. And I wonder if you can talk about whether you feel that was sort of key to the organization's efficacy. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that we were old gay, (laughs) right? So this is pre-rainbow flag homosexuals, you know, who were some of the the sources of some of the most creative political and artistic ideas of the world at the time. You know, gay people have become much more boring now, and I don't think that we produce that stuff that's really cutting edge, but at the time, we were. And so we had that spirit and that underground culture. And then, because it was New York, we had a lot of people who were in graphic design, who were in media, who were in advertising, who were artists, who were filmmakers, who had very sophisticated visual ideas. And so bringing together that kind of camp humor, you know, that's a survival strategy for oppressed queer people. And this this visual sophistication was sort of the magic combination. I mean, one of the things that the book does such a startling job of sort of contextualizing for the contemporary reader is that 
however dif- different these individuals were, that some were poor, some were rich, some, you know, had like polished, you know, Ivy League education, others were people experiencing homelessness, they were all facing a death threat. And from that came the liberty to sort of say, we'll do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter. You know, there's no, like, being arrested is not scary because we're going to die anyway. And it's almost impossible, I think, for a contemporary person to comprehend that. It really felt incomprehensible to me. It's amazing how much the oppression of white gay men has disappeared from people's consciousness. I mean, when I talk to younger people and they're like, well, white gay men, I'm like, do you know what white gay men went through? I mean, there was familial homophobia was a major social force at the time. Uh, And it's a force of history. It made people have to leave their countries and leave their towns. And it separated them from any kind of family safety net. The laws against gay sex were not overturned federally until 2003 with the Supreme Court ruling. And even in New York City, we didn't have a basic gay rights bill until 1986. So the first five years of the AIDS crisis, gay people could be denied housing, public accommodation, which means restaurants and hotels. You could be thrown out of a restaurant in New York City and you could be denied a job. Plus, there was an enormous amount of street violence against gay people. You know, it used to be a sport for people to come into the West Village and try to beat up gay people. So all of that somehow has faded in people's memories. But we're talking about a profoundly oppressed group of people. So even though on the spectrum of people with AIDS, gay white men, some of them, had more access and more privilege, actually they were, in comparison to white straight men, profoundly oppressed at the time. Then, you know, every person who died of AIDS died horribly. And I don't think people realize what a terrible disease AIDS is, that it means you don't have an immune system. So everything breaks down. There's dementia and blindness, and you can't walk, and you can't retain nutrition. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible suffering death, no matter how wealthy you were when there were no treatments. Yeah, I actually think that's an incredible history for people to learn, because when you know, folks of my generation are trying to understand why, for instance, a lot of older white gay men feel put upon when they're, you know, accused of having privilege. I think a lot for a lot of people, this history is still feels very recent and very relevant in their minds. Yeah, well, that's something that I address in the end in my discussion with Cesar Carrasco about the myth of resilience. Because, you know, you have this generation of men who were treated horribly as children. I mean, high school was straight people's party. It's a nightmare. They <laughs> have to be in the closet. They lose their families. They're humiliated. And then all their friends die. They think they're going to die. Uh, they survive. Now they're in their 60s or 70s with all kinds of psychological and physical problems as a consequence. Lots of drug addiction in that generation and all of this. And then someone comes along and says, well, it wasn't just you who did this movement. There were women and people of color there too. And there's this fear like that their sense of exclusivity is being taken away. Hmm. I mean, I've had a few interviews where people have said, well, you're foregrounding women and people of color. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just saying what they did. I am not foregrounding it. And I'm saying what, what these incredible white men did. 
I'm saying what everyone did, but there's something about that that is very, very threatening and makes people very angry because their trauma has not been recognized. You sort of describe how ACT UP was in some ways a lesbian feminist like teach-in on, on the whole for, for gay men. Um, I wonder if you could explain to our listeners what, what you mean by that. Well, there, so the main movements that people came from when they came into ACT UP, people with political experience, were the Latin American student movements against fascism, the Black Civil Rights Movement, Congress on Racial Equality, Black Liberation Movement, and the Lesbian Feminist Movement, particularly involvement in reproductive rights and against sterilization abuse. Most of the younger white gay men did not have any political experience at all. There were older people who came from gay liberation, but there were few of them. Mm-hmm. So when it came time to things like, how do you organize a meeting? Right. What is civil disobedience? All of that kind of stuff. You had these people who knew and would hold these teach-ins that were very important parts of ACT UP. Because in ACT UP, any person could be a spokesperson. And every person wanted to be fully informed. Uh, it was an amazingly informed group of people. So, for example, I name individuals like Marion Bonzoff, who came from the Feminist Women's Health Clinic movement and from reproductive rights and came in and was part of a teach-in on the concept of patient-centered politics. Or Jamie Bauer, who is now non-binary, but at the time identified as a lesbian, who came from the women's peace movement and came in with all this knowledge about civil disobedience training. You know, people like Maxine Wolf, who had had years of hardcore political experience and knew how to think politically and knew how to organize campaigns. And these people were profoundly, profoundly influential. When you interview people from ACT UP, their experience of doing nonviolent civil disobedience, of being trained for it, of going, that's their one of their foundational experiences in the organization. The idea that people with AIDS are the experts the idea that that, th- that issues should be looked at from the patient's perspective, that is central to ACT UP politics. Women really were theoreticians in ACT UP. Yeah. One of, yeah, one of the things that I loved, and I'm going to forget now who it was who said this, but there's a woman in the book who, um, when she's questioned about the motive for a woman's organization to be involved in HIV AIDS work, her response is like, well, do you know any Nicaraguans? Like pointing, <laughs> pointing out that like that, that, that same group had been involved in work in Nicaragua. And it's like the, imp- like the impulse is not necessarily about the self. There's an impulse about community or there's an impulse about what's just that seems to be guiding a lot of this work. There's this idea of conscience and it's really interesting. And it, it I think what the book articulates is that that comes from an experience in feminist organizing, and I think that's really interesting. Well, it's also that, you know, AIDS was misperceived as a gay man's disease. Right, mm-hmm. right. But, I mean, I started covering AIDS as a journalist around 81, 82, and my earliest stories were on, like, the use of placebo in pediatric drug trials, women being excluded from experimental drug trials, AIDS and homelessness, you know, so from the beginning, there was a lens on social justice and how it intersected with the AIDS crisis. The reason for the misrepresentation is because, and this is another thing that's hard for people to remember, but in, that, in the 80s, the media was entirely white and male. 
There was no Joy Reid. There was no Rachel Maddow. You know, there was everyone in the media was white and male. The government was white and male. There were very few women even in the government. There were, uh, in private sector, was white and male, right? The whole power structure. So when the media would come to an ACT UP event, they would see other white males. That's who they would photograph. That's who they would interview. Uh, getting even coverage for, the, for women with HIV was incredibly difficult. You know, so, I mean, one of the things that I do in the book is that I really try to show that your strategy mirrors your social position, so I juxtaposed three different campaigns. I, you know, Larry Kramer went to Yale with the head of Bristol-Myers, and he was able to get meetings with Pharma, where he would bring you know, J.P. Morgan, ex-stockbroker Peter Staley, and Harvard graduate Mark Harrington, and, they, and, and Pharma would give them a catered lunch. But when the women with HIV, it, it took them two years to even get a meeting. You know, by the time they won, which took four years, most of the leaders were dead. And they had to do very messy strategies. They handcuffed themselves to leaders. They scream at people in airports. They break into offices. And then contrast that with the IV drug users. I mean, that was messy as can be. People OD'd and died in ACT UP. One guy stole $10,000 from the organization. But they also won. You know, so the more where you are positioned, it may take longer and you have to be messier to win, but you can win no matter where you are. And that's a real lesson about respectability politics, hmm. that respectability, respectability politics are not relevant for large numbers of people. The story of HIV and AIDS is obviously not over. The sense that I got from your book is that there's also a lot of, in addition to lessons that haven't been learned, there's a lot of trauma that hasn't been addressed and an enormous loss of life that hasn't been appropriately reckoned with. You know, what do you think we need in order to do those things? There's so much, you know, there's so many communities, just the community of people whose parents died of AIDS. I was involved in the first gathering of people whose parents died of AIDS. It was held at the New York Public Library. It was... Um, uh, Kia LaBeja was there, Matthew Rodriguez, Alyssa Abbott, and Theodore Kerr was the co-convener. And the audience, it was the first public event. The audience was like every kind of person you could possibly imagine. I mean, every social class. I mean, and people were just like, I've never been allowed to discuss my father's death. Um, I've never met anybody else whose parents died of AIDS. You know, it's a huge number of people. So there's just so much legacy here. Uh, and of course, as we just talked about at the beginning, the, the, the first generation of people who had to be on the front lines of the AIDS crisis and who are still alive today and have not gotten recognition of what they have gone through, have not gotten cultural recognition. So I would like that human recognition. And I'd also, I think AIDS history should be an essential part of all 20th century U.S. history courses at every level of education. Um, you know, I, I, I can't believe that it's not there and it's not. You know, and we need accurate media. We need accurate, accurate dramatic and documentary work that shows the broad, broad coalition that created this change. 
Sarah Schulman is the author, most recently, of Let the Record Show, A Political History of ACT UP New York, which is out now. Everyone, please get this book and read it. It is fantastic. Sarah, thank you so, so much for your work and also just for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. And after the break, we will be back to talk about queer portraiture and what it means. It's been a year. Social media, which was already a significant factor in contemporary life, has been all the more meaningful as we've tried to maintain social distance. The percentage of the population that's now vaccinated keeps growing, but we're not quite back to business as usual. It's still true for me, and it's probably true for a lot of you listening, that most people I see these days are on Instagram. Instagram is fun for showing off your kids or your cat or your cappuccino, but it's also something else, something powerful. You only have to wander through any encyclopedic museum of Western art to understand why so many have so eagerly taken up the technology that allows them to widely disseminate pictures, especially pictures of selves not always seen throughout history. The fact that we're surrounded with them on the many screens that define contemporary life doesn't undermine the power of images themselves. A few months ago, the three of us chatted about the Instagram account Gaze Over COVID, which took various queers to task for social media posts that showed them flouting the guidelines meant to keep COVID-19 in check. But Instagram can also be used to educate or to celebrate. As with one of my favorite accounts, which is run by the AIDS Memorial, it documents real lives lost to that disease. It's really very highly recommended reading for anyone listening who doesn't follow that account. And Instagram is really just the new iteration of a centuries-old form. My co-host Christina recently recommended our colleague June Thomas's interview for Slate's Working podcast with Jeb, who's also known as Joan E. Byron, about her seminal work of photography, eye-to-eye portraits of lesbians. Jamal Jordan, who was until recently an editor at the New York Times, is the latest obvious descendant of Byron, as we see in his brand new book, Queer Love in Color, which uses portraiture and text to tell the stories of real queer people of color. As Jordan writes in his introduction, quote, When the world values being white and straight above all else, how do you learn to love yourself when you are neither? Christina, Brian, and I are going to talk about Jamal Jordan's book, plus I.O. Tillett Wright's recent book, Self-Evident Truths, 10,000 Portraits of Queer America, which happens to feature a photograph of our own Christina Calarucci, and the power of photography to change our perceptions of how the world looks. So I feel like it's really easy to kind of dismiss Instagram, to dismiss the selfie But I also think that the more I think about this question, I think there is some power in taking a picture of yourself, especially if you don't look like the kind of person we have usually valorized. Do you think I'm overstating the case? I think you're right in that there there is power in seeing those kinds of images. But I don't necessarily think Instagram is the place where those Mm. images exist, in part because there's a lot of 
photo editing software out there. You don't see, you know, the 30 selfie attempts that came before. Um, <laughs> everyone knows their angles. The Instagram that I see, even aside from, you know, celebrities and influencers and, and all of the ads I get, still seems to be a little bit of an idealized version of the self in a way that doesn't always make me feel good about myself. That's it's such a hard question for me because I, I don't know that I have ever... This might, I'm sure people could fact check me on this, but I, I have, ne I don't take selfies. I've, I've never really done that or felt comfortable doing it. Um, and I, I feel like it's a question for my therapist as to why I don't feel comfortable doing that. But <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I do love like, like the account, the um, AIDS Memorial account that you mentioned, Ramon, like that use of Instagram makes total sense to me and I adore adore that kind of thing um seeing other people's faces and then sort of connecting to to pe you know people who have been lost that way but putting myself out there I, it feels a little grand to me personally to say that like because I'm queer I should post more selfies maybe that's not exactly what you were saying but that that doesn't motivate me but as I say that there may be um personal reasons as to why I, that, that maybe aren't I mean, the pot about Brian, why. I mean, you Brian, do, you do have this new hair brushing technique. That's so I true. Think that maybe you That's should true. feel a little more confident. I think it's more the case that, like, I am overstating it sort of deliberately because I think it's more the case that you can argue that there is something radical about mm. the sort of means of production belonging to anybody now, mm. right? Like, mm. as Christina is saying, yes, maybe it's detrimental if you are choosing a really flattering self-presentation or you're tinkering with it using technology to sort of conform to some, you know, consensus ideal of what looks good. But there is something really remarkable about people just insisting on saying, this is who I am and you mm. have to look at it, you know? Mm -hmm. That feels very new to me and it feels very contemporary. I mean, I'm so much older than you guys. And when I was thinking about this, I was like, oh, God, I'm like really so old. Like, I wonder what it would be like to be growing up queer right now with Instagram. Hmm. You know, I feel like that would be a very specific and, you know, and not uncomplicated tension. Like, as Christina is saying, sometimes you can see images of queerness on your phone that maybe make you fearful that if you don't conform to those, you are somehow incorrectly queer. Yeah, I am so glad I didn't grow up with Instagram for a lot of reasons. But now that you mention it, I remember a piece that I wrote, Brian, I think you edited it, actually, mm. about how one of my favorite internet rabbit holes is discovering a new person, you know, a writer, an actor who played a bit part in something, or even just like someone in the background of my friend's Instagram photos and looking to see if they're queer, like yes. going to their Instagram <laughs> account, going way far back to see like, okay, who's, who are you posing in that photo with? Why did you wear, you know, pants and a suit to that wedding? Like, um, just really going deep in my research. The thing about the three books that we're talking about today is you don't need that research because you know the people in those photos are queer. Mm, mm -hmm. To me, these books are a little bit like a yearbook or even the, to some extent like a family photo album, like extended yeah. family photo album, where you already have this sort of base of connection. So you feel like, you know, these people, we share something in common, we share some sort of history or community. And what do these pictures then tell me about this community that I belong to? 
I think all three of them approach that question in very different ways. As you said, mm-hmm. Jamal Jordan's book, Queer Love and Color, is very much, you know, it's focused on not the self, but on love and relationships, specifically between people of color, which is very different from even, you know, a, a book that included white people who were in relationships with people of color. Like, I think it's especially important that he focuses on people of color in relationships with each other. It's sort of like if you can't be it, you can't see it. I think that is a simplification in a lot of ways, especially now that you can see all manner of things so much more easily with things like Instagram. Imagining myself, for instance, as a kid, having more access to images of like young hot queers instead of like just lesbian jokes and my really wonderful but not really someone who I identified with like student council advisor who was a lesbian, you know, that (laughs) might have made me embrace my gay a lot earlier. And I think especially for people like me whose sexuality is more on the spectrum, like if I enjoy dating men and like find men attractive, then I'm going to identify much more with like the dominant straight culture than I am with someone who I don't identify with, but is really the only lesbian in my life. Christina, as I mentioned in our introduction, you appear in I.O. Tillett Wright's book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that came to be and like what you think of the finished project of that particular book. Yeah, so it was in 2014 that um, I.O. Tillett Wright, I guess, stopped by D.C. um, to take some pictures. And I think I found out about it through a friend who had found out about it through Facebook. You know, he writes in the book, in the intro, that he sort of made a habit of going to different cities' pride celebrations. I think that was really useful for some of these smaller towns or smaller cities to get, like, a large quantity of queers together. That's not what happened in D.C. He just kind of set up in an alley in, um, you know, the neighborhood or whatever, and my friends and I showed up. I was a little disappointed in the finished product, in part because... You know, it it sort of presupposes that there is something you can learn about queerness by just putting thousands of portraits together that are very sort of self-selected and 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 it seems almost a little bit like a vanity project, like both for him, IO, and for us, those of us who are in it. <laughs> you know, like I, it's cool that my picture's in a book, and I did enjoy looking at it. It was actually really fun to look at different cities and find people that I know. I mean, there's 10,000 people in there. If you know a queer person in the U.S., you might be able to find them in that book. <laughs> but the way that he positions the project is as a fight for equality in the sense of, he writes, we hate what we fear and we fear what we don't know. So to dismantle hate, we have to create familiarity. Mm-hmm. So it seems like this book is actually for not queer people to look at and to see, oh, queerness is is so commonplace. It's, you know, it's there's like just so many- It's like exposure therapy. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And like, it's just unremarkable. You know, don't all these yeah. people look normal? And yet the book fetishizes difference in a way that I find kind of weird. Like the cover of it is like, you know, someone in a cowboy hat, someone in a cop uniform, someone in a military uniform, someone in what looks like indigenous garments. It's like the village people on the cover of this book. And then you go inside and it's just- Like, you know, we're clearly diverse, but not always so, like, on the nose about it. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what it's trying to do, whether it's supposed to show how diverse we are or how the same we are. And the fact that he included people, he he uses what he calls the one drop rule to determine whether you're 
queer or not, which is not really a concept mm-hmm. that I think the queer community uses very often. But to say, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, a lot of my, a lot of my old friends from college would be in that book then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Lena Dunham is in it. Someone who has publicly said like, oh, I, I, I just love gay people. Like, I kind of wish I was gay, like doesn't really identify as part of the community as far as I know, which makes it just feel like it says a lot less because mm-hmm. of its mm-hmm. broad and wide net than the other two books. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think? I mean, it's so funny thinking about Let the Record Show, Sarah Shulman's book, and the conversation that we had with her about that project. One of the interviews that she talks about in that book, after an action, I think it was the action at St. Patrick's Cathedral, one of the interview subjects reports like having heard that their own family, that it had changed their perceptions because they thought gay people were weak. Mm-hmm. And it was funny to see people, mm-hmm. gay people doing this like sort of disobedient, taking a sort of strong action to demand that they be allowed to live. That's sort of what you're talking about, Christina. Like, is this just to show straightness that like, oh, look, these people look just like everyone. <laughs> like, you know, you should like them. Or is something more radical and funnier warranted if you really want to insist on that message of like shared humanity do you do it in a way that's not just like here are some pictures of people but do you do something funnier or more outlandish and that's sort of what i liked about jamal's book is that you see people like being lovey-dovey and it's like a little silly it's a little maybe silly is not the right word but it's a little cutesy and a little cloying but like that feels appropriate it feels like that's kind of the right gambit you know if you're the kind of person whose stomach is going to be turned by seeing two men holding hands, then you're not going to read this book anyway. You know, but the right. opportunity to see two men of color holding hands, like maybe that's effective. Maybe it's like saying like, oh, these people are queer. They are like in love and they are holding hands. And that is, this is what it looks like. And that feels kind of important to me. All three of these books are focused on sort of different aspects of being queer. Io's book is very much about the self. You know, he didn't really, when I when I posed for the photo, at least, like, there was no talking. It wasn't in my natural habitat. It was just stand in front of this black backdrop, smile or don't smile. Jeb's book is very much about lesbians in community. So, you know, some of them are with lovers. Some have read themselves. Some of, are doing their job. Some are, you know, with uh, acquaintances, siblings, um, their kids, and then Jamal's book is very much about the the relationship aspect of being queer, which I think some people would say, you know, obviously you're queer whether or not you're in a relationship, but the seeing, the the depiction of people in relationships, especially people of color who, you know, he feels like he didn't actually get to see when he was a kid. Right. That part of it is is saying something new. I was reminded actually looking through IO's book of the time that for Slate, I looked through the entire this compendium that Playboy published of all of its centerfolds over the course of its 50 years Hmm. where like they all just start to blur together after a while, but you kind of start to see some patterns in a way queer portraiture can show you yourself. You know, you can, you can see people who look like you, you can see people who you want to look like, or you can see people that you want to have sex with another, (laughs) another Um, purpose that this kind of thing can serve is to show you people who don't look like you Mm. to, you know, help you grasp the fact that, you know, you can't always tell on the street if someone's queer or not, for instance, or, you know, your small bubble does not represent the entirety of the queer community. A book like Jeb's, you know, 
that served a purpose, a very different purpose in its time than it does now, I think, where at the time, you know, even just reading the quotes of these women, like they were survivors. A woman shown lifting weights was like, you know, well, when you have muscles, men can't intimidate you. Um, You know, another woman says like, oh, learning about cars is my way to feel like I have autonomy and control. Um, You know, so like that kind of historical documentation, I think is important for us to look at now. I'm not sure somebody 20 years from now is going to need to look at Io Wright's book and see like, oh, wow, look at all these queer standing in front of a black backdrop. Yeah, I mean, I definitely had no models of what queerness looked like romantic or just people or otherwise in my um, in my hometown. So running into one of these and any of these books in the library would have been fantastic in that regard, even if sort of unlikely (laughs) in South Carolina. But but now I, I don't know when I look at them, I feel kind of cold somehow, not cold toward the people, but just just like the project doesn't resonate with me as much as other portraiture projects. Uh, one that are sort of not the same as these, but but one I'm thinking of is um, Hal Fisher's book uh, called Gay Semiotics, which some of you may have seen. Um it's it's sort of a study of like male homosexual uh clothing and and sort of signaling uh, in the 70s but it but it's a way of like taxonomizing gay, gay culture in a way that that, that I find interesting and, and sort of relevant to like how do I style myself because some of that stuff hasn't changed but but the sort of just pure representation here are you know here are just 10,000 queer people or here's a certain subset of queer people existing I don't know I, I don't I don't really it doesn't it doesn't thrill me but but that 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 Mm -hmm. maybe maybe i'm not the right audience for it you know well Um, i also wonder if the people who actually would benefit from these will be able to find them you know they're books you have to buy them and or go to a bookstore to find them you know who knows if they'll be in libraries and or if if you you know will feel comfortable checking them out of the library Mm -hmm. i guess that's sort of why i think instagram kind of carries a lot of that particular weight right yeah yeah Yeah. the book does possess a kind of like volition like on the part of its audience and so it's going to find its audience you know like people are going to give people are going to see a book like jamal's book and be like, oh, I'll give this to my queer friends yes. of color, yes. you know, for Christmas or whatever. And that's sweet and lovely. But, you know, queer people of color are kind of already know they exist. And so they may not require being ratified in the pages of a book. But I do think that, like, that's where the social media actually ends up being weirdly important. And again, and you know, on Instagram, there's also an act of volition and you have to sort of choose what you're following and you create what your own bubble looks like there. But hearing Brian's kind of skepticism or, you know, a sense that like he isn't connecting with these books sort of makes me think of this thing that we hear a lot in the culture, which is representation matters, mm, right? right? Does it really matter? Like, and what do we mean when we say that? We sort of take it on faith a lot of times. You know, I think people say that and I nod my head. And then I ask like what they mean and what does that mean? And I don't know that I've ever heard a really good working answer of why representation matters and for whom it matters. Does it matter for like as Christina said, like, is Io's book for straight people to remind them that queer people exist? And does that matter? Does that have a value? I mean, I suppose it does have a value, but I, it's sort of like the same way that Will and Grace functions. Like, who was mm-hmm. Will and Grace for, you know? I think it, it does matter in certain places and, and contexts. It may not matter. Representation may not matter 
as much to me now. But when you really think about it, I and we are kind of outliers, right? Like we are we are queer adults working in generally in queer media, like in cities. And that's that's not the majority of queer people, actually. And I think it's useful to keep that in mind because yeah, it's just, it's serving a different audience. I think in a lot of cases, much like, much like these books, right? Like I, I don't want to be down on the books. I think it's down on me, right. For, for, for like having it for my specific context, it's not their fault. In addition to seeing something reflected, I think they can serve a purpose for the people actually represented in there and, Mm -hmm. and anyone who identifies with them to say like, I'm, you know, worthy of being represented in a book. I think especially of the people who um, Jamal photographed in townships in South Africa where things like corrective rape have been really common. Right. Or, you know, where one guy didn't even feel comfortable showing his face but still wanted to be represented in the book. Or, you know, a lot of the women in Jeb's book at a time when their children could legally be taken away from them saying, you know, it's important to me to be in this book. I think that is very different from, for instance, the page in I.O. Till It Writes book of like the Google affinity group for gay people. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know that those people like really need that kind of representation (laughs) of like just their their big, beautiful, smiling face. Well, it's useful for me because I'm looking for a second husband who works at Google. (laughs) So... That's helpful information That's for me. fair. Yeah, That's they should fair. have included, like, ways to get in contact with these people. Yeah, yeah. And their, like, annual income. Like, that would be useful. <laughs> As Christina, you said, like, there is some, like, if there weren't power in the simple representation, it wouldn't scare people so much. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it wouldn't. And... Something as preposterous as Will and Grace scared people in its time. Probably still does. There are probably still people writing <laughs> letters sure. to the, the church, you know, from their church about Will and Grace. So, you know, anything that frightens people is going to sort of indicate that it's powerful. To me, it's generational. And it's like impossible to imagine myself into the psyche of a 16-year-old today and figuring out, like, You know, for me, defiance at 16 was, like, finding a picture of a shirtless model in, like, Marie Claire magazine, right? Like, that's, like, that was, like, the search for Mm -hmm. something. And it looks very different, I think, for young people today. And some of that has to do with technology, some of it has to do with cultural attitude. But that that search goes on. It's, like, an evergreen thing. It's, like, just because kids today might have seen an episode of Pose or might, you know, know about, might have seen Ryan Murphy's cinematic universe doesn't mean that they (laughs) are, like, know who they are or or comfortable talking about it or, like, understand what it means. And that's where I think the image actually carries a lot of weight in the current moment, you know, and and always has. And I can't really imagine what that's like. Just imagine being 16 and looking at Instagram and being like, oh God, you can see the whole world here. Yeah. And yet there is still a homogenizing influence there too. Sure. Like, I actually, you know, I guess I just thought of one really positive thing about a book of 10,000 images of queers. Like, you're going to find someone in there who looks like you. Right. (laughs) right. If you're literally like, Uh, well, I don't understand what all these people on TikTok are doing or like, what's that about? Or I'm old and just realizing I'm gay. Like going through a book and being like, oh, okay. You know, that person is is queer or is trans and like 
they seem like, you know, we'd be friends or we wear the same things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could be a little bit like, all right, am I going to fit into this culture? Well, yes, because it's not a homogenous culture. Even when we've asked for questions, um, when we've done advice segments on this show, people will write in saying, you know, they don't feel like they really fit into the queer culture where they live or am I gay enough or, you know, so something like this can, I guess, hopefully, you know, in best case scenario, tell people like, well, yeah, there's no real right or wrong way to do it. You just have to show up. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Because, it, yeah, if it, I mean, back to my my pride earlier, if Instagram knows that you're gay, it will, a gay man, it will start serving you like only like fitness models and porn stars. Yeah. Right. Oh, and, so, oh my and, God, and, yeah. and, you know, yeah. p- part of my, the, you know, the, my struggle with body image stuff is absolutely coming from that, from, yeah. from what Instagram has sort of yeah. curated yeah. for me. And I can, I have actually unfollowed a few things and tried to sort of shape the algorithm. But, but even so, you know, if you stumbled into that as a young gay guy and, that is what was presented <laughs> yeah. to you as like normal. That's going to really, that is, that is problematic <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. It can and fuck so, you up. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. so, um, I, I agree with you, Christina. I think actually I'm, I'm coming around to seeing the value and, and you know, that, that sort of, it, it, however random, like more diverse representation. Um, because, yeah, it's 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 not it's not a healthy place to be stuck in sometimes. I mean, I'm looking at my Instagram, like, my Instagram like suggested page right now and it's right, all right. like it's all shirtless white guys lifting weights and <laughs> oh my yep. god and then Mary Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen like those are the <laughs> only things that it's, Instagram thinks that those are the two things yeah. I'm interested are in they is, wrong, like, young white guys well maybe they're not maybe the algorithm knows like I don't know I don't know mine's the same except put in drag queen drag queens for yeah. the, uh, the American mine is all just like Mine really, I mean, my interests are probably inextricable from a, a straight woman, like makeup, uh, bras, and then furniture I can't afford. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, actually, that's pretty on a gay. couch you can't afford. Designer furniture, it, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I wonder if there are any images that stuck with you guys from any of these books. Mine was from Queer Love mm. and Color showing a couple that wore matching shirts for their photo session, which made me feel good because, you know, as somebody who is the same height and has the same hair color as her partner, I'm always so intense about us not wearing matching things that it's just great to see people embracing that. Yeah, there's a photo of two, um, a black couple with a son that I thought was really just like such a sweet, like it looks like a Christmas card photo. And I mean, I am a part of an interracial gay couple, like raising children. Like that is actually what my life sort of looks and feels like. And it's still kind of surprising to see it. And like, they're like a beautiful family, but they're not like, you know, fitness model influencers, you know, like, and there's something very, there is something very powerful about seeing real people and people who you think like, oh, yeah, I could be friends with them. Like, it's reassuring even to me now at 43. Um, But as we say, like, it's sort of scary to think what the algorithm is going to do with that information to younger people. There was one of a couple who were hungover when they took their photo. <laughs> and I, it was mentioned that they were and they were they they sort of looked looked it a little bit but still but still sh- showed up for the shoot and I, I just I thought that that was yeah I thought that that was lovely. They had been, and I think it mentioned that they were like a mile from the the club where they had spent I think it was New Year's actually. They they had been partying for New Year's and then showed up the next day. Um and I thought that that the intimacy of the hangover was somehow very touching. That's <laughs> to very me, sweet. See, me. that's its own kind of representation. That true, true. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> 
So the books we've been talking about today are Joan E. Byron's Eye to Eye, Portraits of Lesbians, I.O. Tillett writes Self-Evident Truths, 10,000 Portraits of Queer America, and Jamal Jordan's Queer Love in Color. Definitely worth thinking about and negotiating with and thinking about the value of images of people like us. Okay, that's about it for May. But before we go, we have a few recommendations for you and for your gay agenda. Brian, what did you bring this month? Well, Christina, I was inspired by your Whitman reading to mention another Whitman-related thing that I think our listeners should check out. So the artist Taylor Mack, sort of famous person now, I guess, at least among queers, um, MacArthur Genius winner, um, theater theater actor, drag queen, I should say, um, identifies that way, just released a project called uh, Whitman in the Woods, and it is a series of short films. I think they add up to only like 20 minutes total, but a series of short films where Mac uh, in his sort of typical drag, uh, just this like insane, beautiful drag, if you haven't seen it, that's enough to see, interprets a number of Whitman selections while just wandering around in the woods of the Lower Hudson Valley. Um, <laughs> and this is uh, presented um, by All Arts, which is a, an affiliate of PBS in some way that I can't quite decipher. But anyway, we'll, we'll link to it on the we'll link to it on the show page. But it's available for free. You can watch it. Um, and it's good because a lot of Taylor Mack's work can be, I think, kind of difficult to access unless you live in the city where it happens to be put on, you know, one of these 12-hour shows or whatever. And so this is a great little dose of what that that work is like um, that that everybody can access. And you'll and you'll get a sense of why, why Taylor really is uh, a genius. And here's some wonderful Whitman uh, in the process. I'm going to recommend a show that is not new, but that I just started watching. This is very typical for me. Um, it's called Call My Agent. Mm. It's a French series. I think there's four seasons streaming on Netflix. It's about a talent agency and, you know, the sort of charming neuroses of the agents who work there. One of whom is a big old lesbian uh, and is so much fun to watch. Uh, The character is Andrea. She's based on a real life agent named Elizabeth Tanner, played by the fabulous actress Camille Cotton. I really enjoy this um, lesbian character because um, she's, you know, driven by sex, which is always fun to watch, but she will like absolutely abandon a woman in bed if one of her clients calls. You know, Mm. she has a life outside of her seduction. It's a show where her sexuality is not like the main topic. That's not like the whole of her character, but it's also not ignored or made to be like, you know, oh, she's just like everyone else. Like they actually talk about the fact, oh, she slept with men, but she finds them really boring. You know, people ask her like curious and offensive questions all the time. And she is just, you know, very witty about it. And it's just a real joy to watch and super funny. And, you know, just I love watching people speak French. So it's called (laughs) Call My Agent. Highly recommend my gayest dreams are sort of coming true because oh. I am a sucker for 1970s and 1980s fashion and socialites and gossip, the whole <laughs> sort of trashy cocaine thing. Like, I just love that <laughs> stuff. I have, like, an especial soft spot for, like, post-Oscar Liza Minnelli. Um, mm. Just, like, really, that is, like, catnip to me. Um, and Netflix has a new five-part miniseries on the life of Halston. Yes. A fashion designer who requires no first name, although it was Roy, for the record. The one caveat 
is that it's a Ryan Murphy production. Oh! And those can feel a little theatrical, a little lifeless, a little, you know, surface level. But I'm absolutely going to watch any miniseries where the cast of characters includes Martha Graham, Elsa <gasps> Peretti, Calvin Klein, Betty Ford, and the legendary fashion publicist Eleanor Lambert, who in this show is being played by the actress Kelly Bishop, who was the grandmother on the Gilmore Girls and is like one of my favorite. Oh, she was wow. in a chorus line. She's like an amazing performer. The whole cast is like that. It's like all these sort of like um, incredible. Ewan McGregor is playing Halston. Anyway, I'm sure it's going to drive me crazy, but I'm just as sure that I'm going to watch the whole thing. So. <laughs> the surfaces, the surfaceness of Ryan Murphy may be a match for this particular Yes, moment, totally. Yeah, it, it I, might be apt in this one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have high hopes for this, uh, too, so I'll, I'll watch it with you. For, absolutely. Yeah. All right, that is all the time we have for the May episode of Outward. Uh, please send us feedback and topic ideas to outwardpodcast at slate.com. Or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Those are both at Slate Outward. Our producer is Margaret Kelly. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the very portrait of queer excellence that we all aspire to attain. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Rate and review so others can join you in enjoying us. You can also support Outward and the journalism we do here at Slate by signing up for Slate Plus. It's just a dollar for the first month and $59 a year after that. And in addition to supporting Slate's journalism, you will get unlimited reading on the Slate website and you'll get exclusive bonus segments or episodes of shows like Working, The Waves, Slow Burn, Amicus, and Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery. As for us, Outward will be back in your feeds for Pride on <laughs> June 16th. Until then, everybody, stay gay. Bye, Christina. Bye. Bye, Ramon. Bye, guys. It's great to see you. Bye.